1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Neuroscience has a lot to tell us today about how our brains default to habits. And those habits are not always very conducive to productivity, to motivation, to thinking, decision-making, resilience, burnout, and ultimately a reputation as a leader. So today's focus is what is the latest science telling us? And more importantly, what kind of practical changes can we begin to make that's gonna increase your performance and the performance of your team. So my guest today is Dr. Nicole Byers. She's a neuropsychologist, a speaker, the host of her own podcast called The Bold Life, and she's CEO of Rocky Mountain Neurosciences in Calgary, Canada. She also has a PhD in clinical psych from the University of Saskatchewan, and she's an adjunct research assistant professor with the University of Calgary, published tons of articles in professional journals journals on topics of brain health and neuroscience, and more importantly for today, she helps entrepreneurs and busy professionals get out of the cycle of overwhelming to-do lists, procrastination, and self-doubt so can, they can achieve their goals without burning out. And there's tons of resources, loads of blogs, all sorts of hints at our website, drnicolebuyers.com, spelled B-Y-E-R-S. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I am sorry, super excited about this um, because it's good to just take a dip into what's the latest saying, telling us about brain science. But before I do that, why did you get intrigued in the brain and how it works? What got you started on all of this?
2: Yeah, I'm kind of one of those accidental success stories, I suppose. I took a random introduction to neuropsychology course way back in university in my undergrad and just loved it. I had a fantastic professor at the time and each lesson she would share a story about some of the ways that things can go wrong in our brains and what that can do. And also some of the weird defaults, habits, and systems that our brains have that sometimes can get a little bit in our way. And it really triggered my love of neuroscience, understanding why we do the things that we do and how we can use that to boost our success and achieve our goals.
1: Okay. All right. And now I have to, we have to drill in on this one. When you say defaults, what do you mean? Give me an example.
2: Yeah. So our our brains have certain patterns of responding that at its core are really meant to keep us safe, right? That is our brain's primary objective. And it usually does a really good job of that. Unfortunately, some of these habits and defaults that our brains have evolved through thousands of years of experience don't work so well in our modern world. A really great example of that is uh, our default to worry about what other people think for example people pleasing right we've probably all heard of this before our brains evolved to really care what other people think because it made sense from an evolutionary perspective we needed other people to like us right we needed we needed to cooperate in groups we needed to work together it really meant the survival of our species the problem is in our modern world we don't only care about those immediate people around us, our friends, our family, our coworkers. Our brains care what everybody thinks. We care about strangers on the internet and that random person I meet at the grocery store and all these people. And that can really get in our way and leads to a lot of overwhelm for our brains.
1: I've heard um, folks say that as our brains were evolving, we might encounter 100, 200 people in our lives. And today you encounter 200 people just getting on public transportation, getting to the office, let alone at the office, in the meetings, over lunch, journey home, doing whatever shopping or errands you have to do. I mean, we just encounter thousands of people. And if we let all of them matter to us, then that starts to be overwhelming. Yeah.
2: Yes, absolutely. That is a really great point. Is that in so many ways our brains are designed to filter that information that's coming in from around us and that worked so well for thousands of years, but now when our environments are so much different than they were for our ancestors, it just means that our brain is having to work with these systems that are a little bit outdated, they don't necessarily help us in our modern world. Okay. Okay.
1: All right. So I need a tutorial and this is terribly unfair. I'm going to take your PhD work, your life's work since then and say, tell me in 10 minutes, Max, what it is I need to know about how our brains work. So can you just give us like a micro tutorial?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Great question. I'll do my best. So I think really what I would say the the key message to keep in mind when it comes to how our brains function is they're designed to keep us safe. Like I said, For your brain, one of the ways it keeps itself safe is using the least amount of energy possible. Your brain wants to conserve energy at all costs. And our brains are really a huge energy draining organ. They use up to 20% of all the energy in our body, which is a lot given how small your brain is relative to the rest Of your organs and systems, right? But our brains are big, energy sucks. So they want to be as efficient as they can. And so they get into these defaults that we started talking about a little bit, into these habits, these patterns of responding to make life easier. And a lot of that is a really good thing. For example, we talked about how different our modern world is in terms of all the people that we encounter day to day. Our brains are constantly taking in this almost infinite amount of information from around us, things that we see right now, things that we can hear, the, the feel of the chair as you're sitting here at your desk listening to this episode or in the car or wherever you're listening to it, the smells from your coffee that's sitting on your counter. It's constantly taking all these things and your brain has to decide what's important to pay attention to and what's not important to pay attention to. And so it has developed these systems to make those decisions easier, to make them more efficient. But sometimes that means we're paying attention to things that aren't really helpful, like what everyone else might be thinking, and we're missing things that actually are important for us to pay attention to. And so in so many ways these these systems, these brain-based systems are really designed to make life easier, and they do most of the time until they don't, until they start to really get in our way.
1: Okay. So can you say more about these systems? So we talked about, there's a system that says that I should care what people think. That's part of survival. There's a system to filter out the thousand pieces of sensory information into something I'm going to remember I can process. Say more about these systems.
2: Yeah. So really most of the systems in our brain also learn from experience. So for example, if you, here's an example from my life. One day I was sitting here working and my daughter's playing on the other corner of the room and she's playing with this ball and all of a sudden she loses track of it and it's coming flying at my face. My brain needs to know when to pay attention to that, right? It needs to be able to shift my attention from talking to you to all of a sudden, oh my goodness, there's this flying object coming, shooting at me. I need to be able to move really quickly out of the way. And so often when we've had these experiences like this, our brains learn, okay, now maybe I need to pay a little bit more attention to what my daughter is doing in this circumstance. Sometimes, though, people-pleasing is a great example of this, carrying on with that since we've talked about it. We've had these negative experiences where we have felt like we've let someone down. We have felt like someone has judged us negatively. We've had a really bad experience, maybe at work, in a meeting where you said something and you felt judged or you felt like it didn't come across very well. And our brain then doesn't want to feel that ever again, right? My brain doesn't want to get hit in the face by that ball, so it learns to avoid Things that my child is playing with. My brain does not want to feel like I am failing in that meeting or that I'm being judged negatively in that meeting. And so, what can happen is our brains end up putting up a lot of roadblocks and resistance, again, designed to help us, designed to keep us safe. But it can mean that we take ourselves out of the game, that we feel like we need to stay more in that comfort zone where if I don't speak up in this meeting, then I'm not going to worry about messing up or saying the wrong thing. If I don't put myself out there at work and apply for that promotion, I don't need to worry about getting shot down and failing. And so our brains can learn what's meant to keep us safe but can really keep us stuck.
1: All right. So our brains are wanna keep us safe. They're a huge energy sink, so they want shortcuts. Yes. Fast. Um, when things go wrong, they learn quickly not to go back into that situation again, whatever that is, ball flying, negative comments, speaking out in meeting, whatever. And that makes it harder for us to do things differently. Yes. Change patterns. Yeah? Is that the general idea? Okay. Are there other systems we need to know about, other examples of systems?
2: Yeah. You know, one thing I think is really helpful to know too is that we have Parts of our brain that are designed to respond really fast and parts of our brain that are designed to be a bit more analytical and problem-solving based. For example, if that ball is coming flying at me from the corner of the room, my brain has... Kind of go-to fast response systems that can help me jump out of the way that sends, you know, floods of um, oxygen and blood to my muscles so I can move quickly, so I can readjust my attention, so I can avoid that ball coming at me. The problem with this is that one big driver of those automatic response systems for our brain is our emotional systems. Those emotional centers of our brain are very deep. In our brain, they are one of the first centers to process a lot of information that's going on around us, and they react really quickly, almost without us even being aware that it's happening or with it feeling like it's out of our control. And where that comes up a lot when it comes to productivity, when it comes to leadership, when it comes to success is when we've had these negative experiences, those emotional processing centers of the brain are in charge. So if I have had a really bad experience in a meeting where I felt really judged or I messed up a presentation and I forgot half of what I was going to say, those emotional centers of my brain are going to be really quick to be like, "Mm, we don't ever want this to happen again. That felt horrible right? I felt stressed. I felt anxious. I felt embarrassed. All of these really strong emotional responses makes it hard to act. It is a lot easier for us to feel in control of our responses, to think analytically when we can move our thought processes out of those emotional centers into the more in the frontal part of your brain and the prefrontal cortex is called um, these problem-solving analytical centers of our brain. But recognizing that that's happening and making that shift can be really challenging because, again, your brain's default is to react with these strong emotional responses to keep you safe. And it can take some practice and some skills to transition that thought process into more of a controlled response.
1: Okay. All right. I can't let this one go because I think there are way too many people who are experiencing this one. You know, you have this uh, emotional response, and most of the times what I see is there's a bit of defensive response. I don't like what you said. I don't like the implications that you're drawing. I don't like what that means for me. And I get this defensive feeling, which is a raw emotion. And it's going to drive a reaction exactly as you just said. And then we say something or do something that feels completely justified, or at least justified after the fact. Okay. Now, how do I get out of that emotional response and into the more prefrontal space where I can analytically think through the responses, the reactions, what I need to learn, et cetera?
2: How do I yeah. make that? Great question. I'd say step number one is recognizing that it's happening in the first place, recognizing that your body is responding. Our bodies often are really good signs that something is going on for us and emotionally, even before our brains are consciously aware of it because that response happens so fast. So just like you said, uh, someone says something to me and my body reacts and I feel defensive, I'm going to feel that physically as well. Maybe my shoulders are going to start to creep up. That's a big one for me. When I ever get stressed or overwhelmed or upset or defensive, my shoulders hold a lot of that stress. Maybe you feel like you're curling in a little bit on yourself. Maybe your heart starts to race a little bit. Maybe your stomach plummets down To your toes, right? All of these are really signs that our body is giving us that we're in this high emotional state. So, paying attention to those responses is a really important first step because if we're not aware of what parts of our brain are running the show, it's really hard to change those response patterns. Okay. So step number one. <laughs> step
1: number one. And with that, you would add a people ask me all the time, what do I do? I turn red. Is that one of those kind of the blush response? Is that one of those physiological responses to pay attention yeah. to? Yeah.
2: Yes, absolutely. That's another great one. So, you know, your face flushes, you feel hot. For example, maybe you get a little bit sweaty, even even a little bit dizzy, right? That is our body's um response system keying up to to again, try and keep you safe, right? right. All of these responses are meant for our bodies to be able to react to whatever right. that thing is coming at us, right.
1: So we get out of the way we move. all right. So the first thing is recognize physically what's happening in my body. And I think I'm hearing you say you will feel it some part of your body faster than you're necessarily aware
2: that it's there. Okay. So that's step number one. Step number two. Step number two in the moment, I would say, give yourself some breathing room. It is hard for our brains to think in problem solving, solving mode to get out of that emotional reactivity space in the moment. Right? So if someone says something to me, Holding back that first response, giving yourself some space, whether that's you wait a little bit to respond to that email rather than responding with that emotional Mm -hmm. reaction. Maybe you say, I need to go use the washroom to give yourself some physical space Mm -hmm. to get away from there. Give your brain a chance to cool down that initial
0: response.
2: Even if you take a few deep breaths, for example, to bring that physiological response down in your body, which is going to free up more of those brain resources that you need to think of a solution that's not necessarily that default emotional reaction, that's one that you might be more comfortable with in the long term from those problem-solving centers. Okay, I have to pause. I want to
1: hear step number three, but I want to pause on this one because I have been told, I could even, Josh Freeman in fact says, that if you don't react and interpret the physiological response lasts about six seconds. Is
2: that true? Is it that fast? Hmm. That's a good question. I don't know if it's exactly six seconds because certainly sometimes it can stay a lot longer, especially because our brains are great at learning, right? They're also learning machines, especially if we've trained our brains to have these reactions often. So I myself am a little bit high strung. I must say, I tend to go to stress mode pretty fast. I know this about myself. So if I am stuck in traffic, for example, I can feel my hands start to tighten on the steering wheel. I can feel my shoulders start to creep up. If I'm still stuck in traffic and I'm not paying attention to those signs, they're going to keep going on, right. right? And anyone who's experienced even something as severe as panic before knows that it can go on for a lot longer, unfortunately, than right. six seconds. Right.
1: Well, this that I think that is consistent with Josh's comment. Since I quoted him, I better now justify for him. Is that it's when you start interpreting, when you start thinking about it, when you start then reimagining it, reworking over it, then it can last for a very long time. But if you stop engaging in the worry or the anxiety, just the physiology can be very quick. And I'd agree with you. I don't know that it's exactly six seconds, but I think the pure physiology is short. Mm -hmm. All right. So I'm aware of the physical sensation in my body, the grip on the steering wheel, the blush in my face, the hot feeling. Um, I give myself some breathing room. I have a pause, whatever pause I can get. It may be just a couple of breaths and it may be a day. Then what do I do?
2: Then what we want to do is give your brain some space to take that response out of those emotional centers of our brain into those problem-solving centers. A really great way to do that is to write it down. Our brains are kind of our go-to, those fast thoughts in psychology. We often call them automatic thoughts. Those first reactions are really driven by those emotional centers. Uh, And when we can write that information down and we start to write down all those thoughts we're having, all those responses that we might have, it moves that information from that part of your brain to that prefrontal cortex to be able to analyze it in a different way. So even the simple act of writing down what is on your mind, moves that process forward in your brain so your brain can interpret it in a different way. And often just by writing out everything that's on our brain, it gives us another perspective as well on possible solutions, ways we could solve this problem a different way without that go-to emotional response. Okay.
1: All right, so we often think about not just, so I'm writing the journaling idea, so it's the unfiltered comments and just write out on paper, not necessarily on a keyboard, write it on the paper, and that forces your brain to begin to think about it in a different way. And if nothing else, I think it allows you to park it, Think you can put it to the side and not have to stress about it for a few minutes so you can begin to think. The tendency, though, is to go and talk to a really good friend. Mm. And then I go and say to the friend, da da, "Da da 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 happened," and I can't believe they said that. And da 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 da, and it doesn't tend to unwind us as much. So, what's your view on that?
2: Or do you yeah, have thoughts about it? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. It it can certainly be helpful to get those feelings and responses out. And if it is, you know, a close friend, a family member that you feel comfortable doing that, there can certainly be benefits. The difficulty with that, I would say, is that we all have our own perspectives, we all have our own experiences, and sometimes for most of us, when someone is venting at us, our kind of response is to either, you know, try to fix the problem, which we know isn't always helpful. No one wants to be fixed when they're venting, right? Even if it's well-meaning or to pile on, right? We start talking, friend brings up, oh my gosh, this happened to me at work too. And that can really heighten our brain's response as well. So instead of this cathartic release of that emotion, it can bring that up. So just be cautious about you know, how you're doing this, what those boundaries are around that discussion and who you choose to share that with. Right. Well, it also has implications if
1: somebody is venting to you, to let them just vent, not to exaggerate or to say me too, or, oh, that's terrible, that's horrible, I can't believe that happened to you, just let them vent is probably the most effective strategy there. Okay, uh, Nicole, this is, um, I know we could keep talking for forever about the systems. There's tons and tons and tons of them. I wanna begin to move us to the conversation of the what else do we do? So you've talked about this ability to recognize the emotional brain's reaction And move those thoughts and feelings from emotion centers to prefrontal cortex, where we can begin to think about what to do and how to do it. Okay, so we got a couple of tactics on that one. What other ways do you see that our brain's defaults and our brain systems are killing productivity, innovation, thinking? We could talk about each one of them. Let's talk about productivity.
2: Yeah, yeah, really great question. One way I see this being really problematic when it comes to productivity is we feel this internal pressure to do it all. We live in this very busy modern world where we have a ton of competing priorities all of the time. We have work deadlines and meetings and five different emails and then we leave work and we have appointments and chores and all of this stuff. And it becomes really overwhelming for our brains to manage, especially if some of our brain's default tendencies tend towards perfectionism overachieving, holding us ourselves to these really super high, unattainable standards, and then being really hard, really critical on ourselves when we fail to meet these expectations. And what I often see, especially for high achievers, busy professionals, entrepreneurs, when it comes to productivity, is we get into this overachiever to-do list burnout cycle, where we take on more than is humanly possible. We have 40 things on the to do list today. Realistically, we have time to check off, you know, four or five. We do those four or five things. And then instead of feeling proud of ourselves, feeling accomplished, our brains say we didn't do enough. We didn't get finished enough. And so we beat ourselves up. We feel really guilty. We feel really bad about it. And we can get into a lot of bad productivity habits to try and compensate, like working through breaks, multitasking and juggling 400 things at once, staying up late just to squeeze in a little bit more, which we know is not a great long-term strategy for our brain health or for our productivity. So we just keep feeling more and more behind and that cycle can really continue. Uh, Yeah, I think I've seen that cycle
1: many, 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 many times. And I know you've written a lovely blog about that one just recently. Okay. Why do we need breaks? convince me i've got a thousand things to do it feels like that five minutes is going to make all the difference in the world to my productivity
2: why do i yeah, need it? it feels like that right and that's exactly the problem is our brains try and convince us that if we just keep working harder eventually we'll get it all done the problem is one we're never going to get it all done because there's always more stuff to do especially for busy overachievers and our brains also have limits one limit for example is our brains can only stay focused for about 60 to 90 minutes on any one task. When we start trying to work on something for 3 or 4 hours at a time, we see our focus and attention decline and we see our productivity drop off as well. So even taking a, you know, a micro break every hour or so, a couple minutes There to get up, walk around, refresh your brain, even though it feels like you could be using that time more effectively, those breaks actually give a chance for your brain to refresh, to reset, to free up some of those mental resources to get focused again.
1: Okay. All right. Multitasking um, uh, let's say at least 60% of my clients and maybe more believe that they are skilled at multitasking. They believe it's shows their, you know, great intellectual prowess or whatever
2: productivity. What's wrong with multitasking? What's wrong with multitasking? That's a great question is our brains can't actually multitask, not in the way that we think, They can. What we do is our brains rapidly shift focus from one task to another. So if I'm answering emails while I'm sitting in a meeting, what my brain is doing is focusing on that email, then focusing on what my colleague's saying, then focusing on that email, then focusing on what my colleague is saying which really drains a ton of resources because every time we shift that attention, our brains have to get refocused. And just like you said, it's not uncommon, unfortunately, for us to believe that we're really good multitaskers, but we're actually not. There was a study, I'm gonna forget what university it was done out of in the moment, but they looked at multitasking and what they found is that people who thought they were good multitaskers actually tended to be worse at multitasking than their colleagues. So we're not very good at it. We're not very good at judging how good we are at it. And even something as simple in the study, they looked at walking and talking on a cell phone, which is a pretty simple form of multitasking. Most people would say like, oh yeah, of course I can walk and talk on my phone, right? Actually we can't. The people that were talking on their phones, they tended to deviate in their walking more. They tended to slow and speed up more. And they even missed things. Like in one study, they had someone jump out in a clown costume and the people on the phone didn't pay attention to them. So we're not good at multitasking. We think we are. And that's a really big problem for our brains. (laughs) I think there's
1: one study that I'd love to cite that says that every time you're switching a task, you're actually losing about 23 minutes. Because it takes effort to refocus the second time around, and then you miss something and you got to focus back on the new thing. And so that shifting is highly costly. Yes um, no one believes that. I think we need to do the experiments and then show them again, Nicole. I think you're yes. right. But all you have to do, to believe that you can't talk on the cell phone and walk at the same time, is follow somebody on the streets who is trying to do it. And you will see, they speed up, they slow down, they wobble. They're on one side of the street, they're on the other side of the street. They hesitate at the street corner when they should. They don't hesitate when they should. not I mean, a whole range of behaviors that are easy to see if you're not doing it. Yes. Okay. We can't multitask. All right. Okay. Fantastic. So we need breaks. We need multitasking. We need tactics to shift from the emotional centers to the prefrontal cortex And we need to recognize that what our brain is doing, um, you didn't use the word, I'm going to do the word lazy because it's trying to conserve resources. It's trying to focus on the things that really matter and conserve resources. All right, this is a perfect place to take a break. When I come back, I want to continue this conversation, and I want to start to move into some more of Nicole's strategies on how you deal with some of these brain systems and brain's default. So my guest today is Nicole, Dr. Nicole Byers. Um, she is a neuroscientist, neuropsychologist, I should say, speaker, and the host of the Bold Life podcast. And you can get tons of resources on her website, Byers, com. We'll be
0: right back a little birdie told me voice america is on twitter follow us at voice america trn
1: Group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive. All on out of the comfort zone.com. We hope you'll join us.
0: If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum helping organizations get it and keep it.
1: This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight.
0: You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone.
1: Welcome back to the show. With me today is Dr. Nicole Byers, and we are talking about how our brains work and how those default systems that have kept us productive, effective, safe for centuries, hundreds and hundreds of years actually are counterproductive to our productivity, to our psychological well-being, to our motivation, to our resilience, to our leadership, to our health in general, just to name a few. So we have been talking about a variety of things that we think we can do that the science clearly says we can't do. Like I can just barrel through without a break. The science says, no, you become inefficient after about 60 to 90 minutes. So take a two minute break. We think we can multitask. The science says, actually, no, you can't. What you're doing is switching attention from one task to the next, and you're being inefficient both in the switching and in the completion of each task, plus you're burning precious energy and resources as well. Okay, Nicole, let's shift. What other productivity habits do you have that you highly recommend?
2: Yeah. I think the really important thing to keep in mind when it comes to productivity is our brains only have so many resources to use each day. We wake up with so many resources, every task that we do, every decision that we make drains some of those resources. Some tasks are easier for our brains. We've talked about a lot of those default systems, those default habits that our brain does almost automatically. So they don't take a lot of energy. They don't take a lot of effort to put into them, but other things really drain our brain resources fast. So when it comes to productivity, what we want to do is make as much of our day as efficient as possible so that we can save that energy, that time, that focus for those tasks that are really meaningful, that are helping take us closer towards our goals. Okay. For example, one strategy that I always recommend, it is one of my favorites, I do it every day, is the very last thing that I do before I close my computer for the day is I plan my next day. couple of reasons for this. I see this a lot of times um, happen, especially for folks who work in office type settings. We get to our computer In the morning, we sit down at our computer and we get distracted, right? We pull up our emails, there's 400 emails sitting there and we start going down this rabbit hole of responding and all of a sudden it's noon and we haven't done anything productive, right? And we're tired because all of that is draining our brain's resources. So like I said, what I like to do is the night before I plan my next day. So I put my most important tasks, those key projects I want to get to first in my schedule so that when I get to my desk, I can hit the ground running. I don't have to think and use brain resources deciding what I'm going to do today.
1: That's a simple one. Um, So how many minutes do you spend at the end of the day? I can imagine for some that feels like that's two hours of task. Um, And especially if I'm exhausted, it's hard to plan. So is this a five minute exercise for you or a little longer?
2: Yeah, about a five-minute exercise, that's right. As I take a look at my schedule, I look at what is already in there that can't be moved. Do I have meetings? Do I have other things, for example, client calls that I need to get to? Then I think about what are my current goals right now? What are the tasks that I need to get done? And then I put those in there. I also think it's really helpful when you're doing that to actually block the time in our calendar because we have this tendency to overextend ourselves, especially as busy overachievers. We think that we can get a lot more done in the day than is actually realistic to do. And so when I know that I want to make three calls tomorrow to different clients, each of those is going to take an hour. When I physically put that in my calendar, it sends a message to my brain that that time is blocked now, right? Okay. I'm not going to expect to do anything else because that time is already scheduled versus just writing everything down on a list. And my brain has no idea how long it's going to take and can be really unrealistic with my expectations.
1: That's I one of my major faults, I confess, is I think something should take five minutes and it ends up taking a lot longer than that, often because there are ancillary parts that go with it that I didn't anticipate. Some I could anticipate, some I never would have seen coming. Like you have to reset your password and that takes forever. You thought it was a two-minute task and suddenly it's not a two-minute task. All right. So plan the next day. What other productivity habits do you have?
2: Yeah, that brings up another really great strategy that I think is really helpful for most of us as well is leaving what I call buffer zones in your schedule. Because for most of us, life happens like that right? You have to reset your password and you didn't expect to. You go to log on to a call and then all of a sudden Zoom needs to update and you're not ready for it to update, right? Or the printer breaks down or a meeting runs long. And so what I recommend is leaving some buffer zones or blank space in our schedule as well. Because the other tendency that we have as overachievers is we book ourselves back to back to back to back to back to back to back, back, right? And then when the first meeting goes over five minutes, you're rushing, for the next one. Your brain is already feeling behind and more stressed out and that takes up more of those brain resources. So you get to the next meeting a bit stressed out and then that one goes over too and then that one goes over and all of a sudden it's the end of the day and you feel like you've been rushing all day because you have which is really defeating and demotivating for our brains, right? So if we can leave those little spaces in our schedule, they can be really helpful for when the unexpected happens because things do. And it also gives your brain some of those kind of forced breaks as well that we were talking about earlier. If I have those spaces, my brain knows, okay, that's the time where I'm going to go grab a coffee or, you know, go for a little walk around my building or whatever it is to refresh those brain cells. Great. Great.
1: Okay. I love that. Some buffer zones. Now for some of us who don't control our calendar because the rest of the organization sees a spot in our calendar and grabs it, um highly recommend that you put those blocks in, say, the week before even so you know you've got things to do. And it also means you have to avoid getting sucked into the emails because that will take, you know, half a day if you let it. So all of those strategies, I think, are part of um, increasing productivity. All right. One more productivity hack, please.
2: Yeah. And one more that I'd recommend is as much as you can, reducing those distractions. Because everything that could distract you, like your email alerts popping up, even if you're trying to ignore them, even if you're not checking them, every time you see that little notification in the bottom of your screen, it pulls your brain's focus, right? Like we were talking about in the first segment. And that forces our brain to quickly shift our attention back and forth, which is draining those brain resources. It's making it harder for our brain to stay focused on what we need to do. So closing Email. It seems little, but it's not. It is a huge distraction for our brain. Actually, close it down if you're not checking it. Close all those extra browser windows. Take all that extra project work off your desk, except the project that you're working on. Remember, our brains are constantly taking in this infinite amount of information, and we want to make life easier for our brains. So, the more that we can reduce that clutter, whether it's electronic clutter, whether it's clutter on your desk, whether it's clutter on your mind, all those stresses, any way that we can reduce those distractions, it just makes it more—it just makes it easier for our brains to be efficient. Okay, that is mine, and this is
1: my tip. I know I keep try to keep all those notifications off as much as possible, but the big thing for me is clearing my desk because when I need to focus and I want to concentrate, and I look up and I see the pile of something over there I haven't gotten to, suddenly I'm thinking about that, and I've lost the focus. So, the desk clearing is. Really important. In fact, I was doing that just before we started today, Nicole. So I was focused. <laughs> yeah. All right, I'm going to shift from productivity. And by the way, there's tons more productivity habits in Nicole's website, drnicolebuyers.com. Highly recommend you go there and check them out. Let's talk about motivation and particularly this thing called procrastination. What do we do here? What's happening and what do we need to be doing?
2: Yeah. Procrastination is another one of those habits or those defaults that our brain gets into really designed to keep us safe. Our brains actually love to procrastinate because it feels good, at least in the short term, right? Usually when we're procrastinating, it's because we are avoiding something that we don't want to start. Maybe it's a phone call to a client that we're not quite sure how it's going to go. And so our brain's making up all these stories about how this could be a giant disaster that doesn't feel comfortable for your brain. So your brain's like, oh, let's just put it off. We'll deal with it another time. The problem is, is that one, it never really goes away, right? You're avoiding that call to your client every time you look at your email and see that client's name, you're thinking about that client now, right? And you still have to deal with it at some point, most of the time. So, while our, it makes sense that our brains say, okay, in the short term, I'm going to keep us safe. I'm going to avoid this task I don't want to do. I'm going to procrastinate. In the long run, it can lead to more overwhelm because now we're behind. Now we have more stuff to do. Now our brain has had all this time to turn this small task into this giant monster because our brains are really good at doing that as well, taking something that maybe was minor to start with and blowing it up into this giant problem that you're now going to avoid and it's just taking more and more resources.
1: All right and then plus it takes energy to to not to actively try not to think about it because that's yes. using resources as well. All right so what's the anecdote what do we do?
2: Yeah. The fastest way to get our brains to get out of procrastination mode is again one to recognize that we're doing it. In the first place, one habit I see a lot here is what uh, is called productive procrastination, Mm -hmm. where it's not just that we're doing nothing, we're doing all this other stuff that makes us feel productive, but we're not dealing with the thing we need to deal with. Like I'm going to spend this hour checking my emails rather than making that call to that client, right? So I'm doing this productive procrastination where I'm doing stuff, yes but it's not necessarily the thing that I need to get done. So recognizing that we're doing these behaviors, that our brain is defaulting to these patterns is a really great start. And then what we wanna do is be able to shift our brain from focus on short-term, because that's where our brains are focused right now, is I'm procrastinating because it feels good, I get to avoid this potentially uncomfortable thing, and we wanna focus them on the long-term. Okay, I procrastinate on calling this client, but I'm still gonna have to call them another day. And it's going to take me even longer next time. And maybe if I just call them, at least it's over with. Even if it's a giant disaster, it's done. It's off my brain space. So the more that we can get our brains to shift from the reason to procrastinate to the reason to take action, the easier it is to get out of that default.
1: Okay. So this is a little self-talk.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it can be another task that we we write out, right? If we need to give our brain some perspective, we can do some journaling on this too. Okay. okay. Why am I procrastinating? Why does my brain want to avoid this task? Okay. Now I understand why it's doing that. How do I make my brain take action? What do I need to get my brain to focus on? And even just writing that out in kind of two columns can be a really great strategy to shift that perspective for your brain.
1: My problem is I have too many things I want to procrastinate on so I can spin around between all of them and still not get anywhere <laughs> gone anything. All right, how about motivation? What are the hacks for keeping ourselves motivated? Because that's part of avoiding procrastination.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, there are sometimes we inadvertently Tie motivation, especially as high achievers, we tie motivation to our sense of worth and our sense of value. For example, we feel like I am not motivated today. That means I am lazy. That means I am not working hard enough. That is not Likely true, especially if you're someone who's following this podcast and who is looking to make these changes in your life, right? It's not necessarily that there is anything innate about you as a person that's making you unworthy or unable to do this. The problem is our brains have all of these hangups, right? They have all of these default responses that really want to hold us up. And other thing I would say it's important to recognize is that it is also normal for our energy and our motivation to fluctuate. We all have off days. We all have off weeks. We all have times of the day where it is easier to get started and do things. And learning to recognize some of those unique fluctuations that you have has been something that's been really helpful for me, at least, and for a lot of my clients as well, learning when my energy, my brain power, my cognitive abilities, my motivation is at its peak. Using that time for those really important tasks and being okay that there's gonna be other times where my energy's down, maybe I can do other tasks like those busy work tasks during that time and just get them checked off. Okay, so
1: for most people talk about the morning, is their prime peak time, okay? That your brain is freshest, you've hopefully slept, Is that true for everybody? Do we all have individual patterns on when our peak time is?
2: Yeah, I'd say we all have individual patterns, absolutely. For most of us, certainly that seems to be the case that those morning hours tend to be when we're most creative, when our brains are best at problem solving as well. So yes, those tend to be really productive times, but not everyone is like that. I even think about different seasons in our life, right? I My daughter is turning six right away. When I went back to work, when she was only six months old, I was not great in the morning because she was up all night. Long, right? I wasn't sleeping very well. So, mornings weren't necessarily a great time for me. And so, even in our own lives, depending on what's going on, those energy and productivity times can really fluctuate for us. And that's normal and that's okay. Okay.
1: All right. So, I think part of that is learning to tune into what is your cycle? When are you at your best, at your peak? High energy, I think, would be a signal for that one, sort of high creativity um, high productivity kind of consistently and reserve those times to do your most difficult tasks, your most energy draining tasks and do the menial ones in the other menial, the less taxing ones in the other times. Maybe your email yeah. balance in that time. Maybe not. Depends upon the nature of your email.
2: Yeah. And it would depend on, you know, what's important tasks. For you to and your job. We're all going to have different individual strengths as well. What is energy draining for me might not be energy draining for someone else. Like I hate bookkeeping. It's the thing I complain about the most, but some people that's their job and that's what they love to do. Right. Yeah. So recognizing what tasks drain those resources and what really fills you up with energy and motivation, it's also going to be unique to you. All right. So what energizes as well?
1: All right. Okay. In the minutes we have mar- remaining, I want to turn to this whole topic of burnout, because I know you've been writing a lot about it and should sort if of, uh, you know, help us understand because everybody is feeling a sense of burnout. I'm hearing more of the phrase burnout in my coaching conversations than I've ever heard in the last six months than I have heard the entire cumulative 20 plus years before that. So what ca- what's happening with this burnout? And more importantly, what do we do about it?
2: Yeah. You know, really how I understand burnout is the point where your body and your brain just don't have the resources to do what you need to get done anymore. There are many factors that can Contribute to this overloaded to do lists, high workload demands, things outside of work like family stresses. And we just went through a multi year pandemic and now we're at the start of a financial crisis. And there are lots of things going on in the world around us. And all of these things can drain our mental resources. We do not live in isolation. And so that's something to keep in mind too is that all of these things going on around us will also drain our energy. When we start to worry about burnout, We worry about things like we start making more mistakes is often a great sign that our brains are approaching burnout. We're sending emails with a ton of typos. We are stumbling over our words more. I can't remember where I left my phone and all of a sudden I find it in my fridge and I'm like, oh my goodness, how did it even get there, right? We feel exhausted all the time, no matter how much we sleep. Maybe we can't even sleep because our brains won't won't shut off, sorry, right? We start to notice changes physically in our body as well. Tension and pain can be great signs of burnout. They are ways that our body tries to give us a signal that something is awry, something is amiss. All of these can be signs that our brain and body are approaching burnout.
1: This good. I know for me, one of the early indicators is I start dropping things. Mm. I can't hold on to things. Like I just, yeah, you know, I drop a break frequently, but I just drop. That's a good sign to me that I my resources are kind of slack. All right. What do we do about this burnout? What's your best advice on how we manage it?
2: Yeah. So first, again, step number one, as always so far today, is recognizing those signs, right? Learning to pay attention when our body and our brains are trying to tell us that something is going on. Because often, burnout becomes really problematic because we're ignoring all of those signs. You start dropping things. You start stumbling. You start tripping over your words. My speech sounds like a bunch of nonsense when I'm trying to talk and I can't find the words that I want to use. And instead of recognizing that that's a sign that something needs to change, I keep pushing, right? If I just push through, things will get better. But we know that's not how our brains work, right? When our brains have gotten to that point of decision fatigue or burnout, they need a chance to recharge. And that often means taking a step back, taking a realistic look at What am I really managing right now? What are those million things that are actually on my plate? How can I cut back in some areas to really prioritize my health and well-being, to add some of those things in that are going to recharge our brains, that are going to recharge our bodies, our emotional health, our spiritual health, so that we have those resources to do what we need to do.
1: I think that most people believe, there are too many people who believe that the solution to this is just to gut it out. You just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And I think what you have to recognize is there's a physical cost for doing that. Yes, but there's an efficiency cost for doing that. (laughs) It's taking more energy. You are going to make more mistakes. You're going to say the thing in the meeting you don't need to say that you then end up spending the next two months (coughs) unwinding and so on yeah yes, absolutely doing the thing that's going to re-energize is going to decrease the chances of some of those negative defaults coming through and reputational damage and so on
2: yeah think about but like so like hard. if your body is a is a car right like yeah you can drive that car until it dies on the road but you don't want it right you take your car for oil changes you put gas in it you clean it every once in a while right we need to charge our bodies in the same way we only have one of them they are not replaceable and we need to be aware of that.
1: Yeah, nicely said. I think we need you in our ear echoing that this is the only one shot you got and it needs a recharge. And sometimes I think the recharge isn't as complicated as we think. I think we tend to believe, oh, I need a two-week vacation in a beautiful sunny spot. But that's, you know, my understanding of the research is that isn't necessarily what we need for a recharge. What are you seeing?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. It's what tends to work better is when we can make these small changes, add these small things in that will recharge ourselves every day, rather than waiting for that two week break where you spend the first half of it sleeping and then second half sick because your immune system is now compromised from working 60 hour weeks for the past six months, right? We don't want to wait. For that point, what we want to do is find ways to recharge you know, our, our brain and our body every day, whether that's a few minutes of reading, for example, at the end of the day, or watching your favorite show on Netflix, or spending some time with your family, playing a board game, or going for a walk. All of these small things really give our brain a chance to recharge, to disconnect from that to-do list and feeling like we need to go, go, go all the time, and to refresh those brain cells.
1: I have been a fan in the last couple of years of getting my coaching clients to start physically track tracking. So like with wearable devices that give you accurate measures on how much stress you're carrying and what are you doing that gives you a recharge. You can plot it. (laughs) And I've been doing this myself, thinking about what are the five minute things that actually give me that recharge and it's amazing the collection of them. You start accumulating and looking at the data, and you realize this is not an impossible task for me to get these into my day, even if I have a very jam packed day. And again, the payoff is: I'm less drained, I'm more effective as a leader, I'm more efficient and productive, I'm more motivated. I'm l- all the good things that are coming out of that one as well. Absolutely. Okay, Nicole, what didn't we talk about that you just think I should have absolutely, totally asked and I missed?
2: Oh, that's a good question. We covered a lot of really important things. I say kind of my main takeaway is keep in mind that your brain only has so many resources when we're looking at productivity and efficiency and burnout. How we use those resources matters. And also that our brain also has these defaults that can sometimes get in our way. But the more that we're aware... Of those defaults, the easier it is to start taking some steps to retrain our brain. Okay.
1: I love that. Great, great shout out. There are so many, I keep calling them hacks, but they're not hacks. They're habits that allow your brain to be more efficient, more effective, more productive, and you to feel better about it in the process. So I think that's a win-win all the way. Nicole, my favorite question to ask is what takes you out of your comfort zone and what do you do about it?
2: Yeah. Good question. I got to say a lot of stuff is taking me out of my comfort zone over the last few years on this entrepreneurial journey, learning a lot of new things that I didn't learn in school necessarily, having to stretch some of my skills that I did not know were there. For me, I am learning to, what we've been talking about today really is learning to recognize when my brain is putting up that resistance. The more that I am aware that my brain is like, Eh, this doesn't feel good, it's really bringing to light you know, a chance for me to do some reflection on why exactly does that feel icky? Why do I feel uncomfortable trying to make this step? Is it realistic or is it a bunch of nonsense that my brain has made up about what this thing is? And then can I take some of those effective steps, those really those baby steps to try and get my brain to um, step outside that comfort zone a little bit and be okay Great. with it?
1: I love that. I think that's a very powerful for anybody who's moving out of their comfort zone, this notion that the resistance, your brain, your body, feeling like I'm afraid of it is normal. That's your brain in a default mode from having learned things go wrong in the past. So let's not repeat any of those. I don't want to do it again. I don't want to feel uncomfortable. And then to step back and say, what is it? What's the reason for this and how much push that into the prefrontal thinking category away from just the emotional centers um, to get some long-term planning strategies to think about why am I procrastinating and all of those are going to help you decide do I do or not to do great advice I love that one thank you all right I don't even know where to begin today to summarize all the things that I think are so important out of this podcast but as I think through it One of the ones is to recognize that our brains are built, as you've said many times, to help us be safe. And that is its primary mechanism. It chews a ton of energy from our body. It has a limited capacity. Our bodies have limited capacity. So it is there to constrain the use of those resources and keep us straight, safe. And that sets up some defaults that aren't necessarily in our best interest in modern life, in working life, and especially in highly productive overachieving, et cetera, et cetera, and thinking through how to tackle some of those challenges and do it in a more consistent way seems to me worth the price of the podcast. So Nicole, thanks for joining us. What a great show. Well, thanks for having me again. All right. Again, if you'd like to learn more about Nicole, check out our website at drnicolebyers.com. Byers, Certainly join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. And if you like what you've heard today, want to hear more, check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. And we'll see you next week.
0: Thank you for joining us today.